Thank you for downloading the podcast today. If you're interested in Paul Bryan's Common Errors in English Usage book, this is a great time to buy the book online at our website, William James and Company, WMJASCO. You can also reach us by phone at 800-322-2665 or 503-284-6348. From now until the end of the year, we are offering the book for $15 with free shipping in the U.S. only. Very sorry, international listeners. You can't be included on this deal. But it's good through the end of the year. And if you have a U.S. address where you could receive the book, we'll ship it to you free. I often meet people while I'm walking through the woods with my tripod and there's brilliant sun flooding down through the trees with deep shadows all around and hikers or runners that are going past will say, oh, a great day for photography. And I'm thinking, really wish we had a few clouds right now. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, last time we talked a little bit, uh, we said we were scratching the surface of the surface that we're going to cover as we talk about the language of photography and get into a lot of interesting uh, little details and stories about your work and some of the learning that you've gone through as you've shot a lot of photographs over the years. We talked about some of this terminology, f-stop, aperture, ISO, how that applies to cameras, but there's a bit more to cover here. Um, While you're mentioning surfaces, <laughs> it's absolutely elementary, but important. Look out for stuff on your lens. <laughs> I was taking pictures from the ferry yesterday going into Seattle, and there was a dense fog, and it was quite a spectacular landscape with this band of fog going across the city skyline and so on. And I was using a little point-and-shoot camera. And when I got home, I found that there was a little spot in my pictures up to the left of Mount Rainier, that didn't belong there, and it was undoubtedly a, not a raindrop, but a little fog drop <laughs> that landed on the lens. Oh. It's really important to check your lens every once in a while. Make sure it's clean. Now, tiny little dust specks, if you're shooting at fairly long focal lengths, often you'll go right past them and they won't appear in the photograph. But do check your lens every once in a while to make sure that there isn't some gunk on it or some dust. Uh, use the lens cap. I have uh, spring-loaded lens caps by Tamron that I like that pinch on and off pretty easily and don't fall off too easily. I've lost a lot of lens caps before I found these. Um, and in fact, swinging along through the bush, trying to get to a swamp that I'm supposed to photograph, um, I've had lens caps just drop off and disappear. So a good secure lens cap is important. And I know it's a little bit of a hassle to put it on and off, but uh, it's a good idea to do that. They have these little gadgets you can buy which secure the lens cap to the camera by a little plastic line that it can dangle from. Those don't last very well in my experience and they get in the way a lot. So what I do is take my lens cap off, shove it in my pocket. 
put it back on. But even I screw up from time to time by just not paying attention to the lens as much as I should and keep looking to see that it's nice and clean. Okay, good tip. Don't forget your lens cap. Watch those surfaces. Uh, don't get stuff creeping into your photograph that you didn't intend to have there. Uh, now, what about some of those other terms that you need to know if you're going to be shooting? Uh, you've got one here, white balance. Let's talk about that for a minute. The human eye is really remarkable. Um, it actually has a very small aperture where the focus is. Only the very center of your field of vision is actually in focus. And you may think that stuff off to the side is in focus, but it's not. When you pivot your eye over to check out the focus, bang, it pops into focus instantaneously. It's really good at that. And it, it creates the impression that everything is in focus. Cameras aren't that smart. And they aren't that flexible. And one of the things they're not as flexible about is white balance. You don't usually go from a brightly lit outside into a brightly lit store, let's say, where they're using fluorescent lighting and think, wow, that was really weird. You may not like the quality of the lighting, but it's not going to be totally bizarre. But it can be with your camera. So the quality of the light is really important in photography. White balance can be Average white balance, which is, uh, when I see that, I always think of the average white band. <laughs> yeah, the one-hit wonders, right? Yeah, and you know, if you're just a beginner, yeah, go with average white balance. So you can, it's probably okay, but you're going to get into trouble, especially shooting indoors. So all fairly decent digital cameras have a white balance setting you can do, and even on the iPhone, um, I do not like the white balance that the basic camera app it has at least the one on mine. I don't have the very latest iPhone with the very latest camera, but the current one, I find the white balance is often pretty much off. Um, but then there are apps you can buy for the phone where you can actually set the white balance to correct that. So learning something about white balance is important. And here you don't have to worry about complex numbers and obscure terminology and stuff. You just need to know what kind of light you're using. So sunlight, direct sunlight. Now, most of the time, direct sunlight is what people think of as ideal light. I often meet people while I'm walking through the woods with my tripod, and there's brilliant sun flooding down through the trees with deep shadows all around, and hikers or runners that are going past will say, oh, a great day for photography. And I'm thinking, really wish we had a few clouds right now, because um, brilliant sunlight makes things very harsh looking. Uh, it can anyway. And uh, if it's mixed with dark shadows, then it really is going to challenge your camera. So being able to, to figure out what's the appropriate white balance is part of the secret to making good photographs. Now, an old traditional way to handle this was with a gray card. And you would hold a card with a neutral gray, especially printed, that had the characteristics that were needed. And then you would photograph that card. And you would check the exposure to see, okay, did that come out right for the particular locale that I'm in? You'd put the card beside the person's face, if it was a person, you know, beside whatever you were photographing. This could be quite cumbersome. It's another thing you have to carry around. And um, some books come with a gray card in them that you can rip out and so on. I have not gone that way. Um, and I'll explain a couple of different ways to do this. 
the basic way to deal with white balance is use the white balance settings. And those are usually fairly simple. The first one is sunlight and then shadow. Things look different when they're in shadow and the shadow can make them turn bluish if you're not on the white balance setting for it. Um, and overcast. Overcast is slightly different from shadow. It's subtle, but they're not absolutely interchangeable. For me, the ideal conditions for shooting landscape is light clouds, lots of light, but light clouds overhead, which fortunately here in the Northwest is very, very common in the nicer parts of the year. Um, sometimes I'll be out trying to photograph something and I just look up at the sky and say, okay, if I wait 10 more minutes, that cloud will be <laughs> right over the sun and then I can get my picture. For one thing, the shadows aren't as sharp. And often sharp shadows are, especially if they're particularly strong, can be very distracting. Uh, and soft shadows are much better, particularly for uh, people's faces. Uh, sharp nose shadow going across the cheek is very unflattering. Now, you can deal with that with uh, various other techniques using auxiliary lighting, um, with fill flash. Those are more advanced um, you know, hijacking a cloud or if you have somebody to hold a big umbrella up to block the light of the sun down on your subject, there's a number of ways to do it. But the simplest way is to use your light balance. Then when you move indoors with a really good camera that's good at low light levels, you can keep taking photographs in not a dim room, but, a, you know, an average lit room. And there are portrait photographers who specialize in shooting people sitting to the side of a window so that there's a window light coming in, but it's illuminating one side of the face rather than the other, not with the sunlight directly on them, but diffused throughout the room, bouncing around. That can be very flattering and very nice, but not everybody has a window with a nice blank surface beside it that works for that kind of thing. But the kind of light you're using indoors is important. So you've got traditional fluorescence. Fluorescence, ah, oh, they make horrible colors. And incandescent lights are a bit better. But now we have LEDs, and LEDs come in different varieties. They call natural light, which is bright white, which is sunlight. Um, you have warm ones, and there are others as well. And, of course, you get into a situation such as I shot at a dinner where they were using multicolored lights um, brilliantly flashing down on parts of the audience where it's almost impossible to adjust for it. Those four are really, well, those five are really important to know. So sunlight, shadow, cloudy, incandescent light, that's traditional old-fashioned light bulbs with the little wire inside, and fluorescent. LEDs, you're going to have to eyeball it and just try different things and see what works best. I think eventually cameras will probably begin to reflect the needs of LED, but the LED light quality can be so different from one to another that makes it challenging. Now, the other way to deal with white balance is in processing. One thing that we do more and more now is our digital darkroom, our post-processing. We do that on our own. We don't have to get the darkroom actually set up in our house with all the fluids and mysterious chemicals and things like that. We just throw it up on our computer screen or, for some of us, on our camera, on our phone. Uh, we'll actually do some post-processing there. 
Yeah, they used to do something called dodging and burning. Those are to make the lighter and darker spots on your photograph by actually moving your hand around or, or some other object in the path of the exposure while you're developing it. There is a kind of almost cultish attitude on the part of a lot of longtime professional photographers and critics and art collectors and so on, that the best photographs are those in which um, it's been framed perfectly, it's been exposed perfectly, you snap it, you print it, you got it. And it's the creativity of the photographer, the skill of the photographer is exhibited by how beautiful the end result is without any touch-ups whatsoever. If you can do that, more power to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in this day and age, we don't have to adhere to that. And nobody can tell if you post-process, if you do it carefully. Now, there is an element here I just want to bring up of photographers who are masters of post-production. I'm thinking of um, Jerry Ulsman. We can put up a link to some of his images where he'll take two or three or more photographs and he by hand in an actual physical darkroom combine them to create some surreal looking image and uh, processing your own photographs for true masters of it has been held up as a thing oh yes yes this got brought up in the movie vivian meyer and she of course never processed her own photographs they don't have the photographs that she processed she didn't even print most of them most of them, that's right. Uh, they have her negatives, and they are processing them to create her books of street photography and so on. But this has been an issue for art galleries wanting to display her work because they cannot get to the actual photos, those the true relics that were created bully by her. They're always relying on other people to process her photographs. So this always has been a part of the whole thing is post-production of the film that you've shot. There are still a lot of people that get really nervous when they hear about this, but they're mostly older people. Younger people are using post-processing all the time, but they don't think of it as like that because they're shooting with their cell phones and then using Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're putting all kinds of cheesy filters on to make it look like they've got a much worse camera than they do. Yeah, or Snapchat, right? Yeah, or put odd uh, decorations around the edge or put on a frame or, you know, all kinds of uh, bizarre effects. Well, that's all post-processing. Um, not a kind that I admire a great deal, but uh, it should make you less nervous about changing your own photographs. So I think the young people are not going to be so inhibited about this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not. And this is how I learned anything about how film is treated is only dealing with um, images in Photoshop to the point where Photoshop itself is it's now a verb. I'll just Photoshop it later. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we had to Photoshop uh, John's ex-wife out of all the family photos, you know, this sort of thing. So, Right. Just while we're talking about phone cameras, though, there are apps for doing more sophisticated editing and even the basic Apple Photos app, not in the camera app, but if you tap on a photo you've taken on an iPhone and then uh, you can find controls. There's a set of little sliders on an icon. If you tap on that, you get a very flexible thing where you can adjust the exposure, the white balance, um, 
all kinds of things and, and you can crop the photo and if you've got a shot and you're not terribly happy with it on your phone you can often make it look pretty presentable right there on the phone yeah right one other tip uh, about uh, i was talking about framing the shot perfectly another way to think about this is get the subject that you want and then leave some extra around the edges Sometimes when you look at it later, you decide, oh, I'd really like to uh, have this person be a little further off center, but I don't have enough of the rest of the image to move them off center without losing part of it. So if you can give yourself a little extra room, uh, that can be really helpful. So sometimes not getting too close or too precise in the way of frame it, like getting the very tip of the tree, right almost touching the top of the picture, that can be a real problem if it's slightly tilted and you decide, I want to straighten the picture and all of a sudden the top of the tree is poking out the top or cut off at the top. Right, yeah. Well, that's a good tip. Get as much of the frame as you think you might possibly want to use later. There are others who would argue strongly against it and say that's really bad discipline. You're not going to be a really top-notch photographer unless you learn how to frame everything perfectly. But uh, it depends on how serious you want to be about this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, you can also um, do these sort of global fixes on the uh, iPhone. There's a magic wand icon. You can tap it up or right and say just... Uh, improve this however the iPhone thinks it would look better. And maybe that'll look better for you. It's always worth a try. You can always go back to the original. You don't have to save the changes. Yeah, and in more sophisticated software like Photoshop, uh, if you're working on your images on a computer, um, there's actually an auto-adjustment button or control where you can just try that. Right. <laughs> See what that does. That could be your first stop. <laughs> Yeah, all software has something like that where it can automate the process, and sometimes they work really well. Sometimes they don't. Well, let's talk about Photoshop. Um, so I started with Photoshop 1.0 when it was just plain old Photoshop on the Mac. And for a long time, the Mac was the only real platform that you could do serious photographic work with. It took a long time for Windows to catch up with it, basically, by imitating the Mac. And um, I was a professor, and so I had an educational discount, which meant that Photoshop was quite cheap, and I could upgrade to each new version as it came out for a token amount. However, when I retired, my particular university had not negotiated a deal where uh, I could continue to have that educator discount. I would have to pay the full sum starting all over from scratch, and I was reluctant to do that. Photoshop had gotten so complex and bewildering to meet the demands of professionals that it had become almost unusable for me. The menus were not particularly logically laid out. There's not a lot of good explanation of what goes with what. Um, just a lot to burrow through, far too many choices to make, and you'd have to read book after book to really get comfortable with it. Uh, even people who are advanced photographers often say that they don't use 90% of Photoshop's options. And of course, now Photoshop is available only as a rental, so you can't buy it on a disc anymore and just keep it. Uh, so you have to keep paying and paying and paying for it. It's strictly for those who really use it and need it a lot anymore. But if you have an old copy on CD, all of the 
big advances. You started with Photoshop 1.0. I remember um, somewhere around Photoshop 4 or 5, they introduced layers. Yes. At that point, they had given me everything I felt like I needed. (laughs) Right. And uh, much of the improvements and additions that come in later versions, including the current versions, they can automate a lot of the processes introduce a lot of shortcuts into things that are still available to you if you know how to fully expose the older versions or the simpler versions that you're using. With the high expense, the recurring expense, and the complexity, a lot of people have switched to Lightroom. And that, I would say, is the majority of the people in our photo club use Lightroom. Hmm. Lightroom has an interesting focus in that it puts a lot of emphasis on storing your photographs. Now, I have thousands and thousands of photographs stored in folders all over my computer, and I have a a system that I just set up that works pretty much most of the time. The search abilities of the Mac are pretty good, and I can usually find what I want. But if you're just starting to build a collection, then having an application that actually stores and sorts your photos is very good. I have one uh, acquaintance who swears by the new version of Photos for the Mac, which is the free application that comes with the Mac and also stores your photos. And that and uh, Lightroom both have the quality of never changing the basic shot that you originally take. So if it was um, Uncle Fred poking his hand into the picture and there's a stray dust speck somewhere and it's underexposed and there's all these problems that you want to fix as you fix them you're actually creating a new version but the old version still exists so if you decide that you've made a mistake and that you kind of like uncle fred's hand you can always go back to it you haven't lost it the way to work around this, of course, is to always save your original shot and work only on a copy. But then you're using up space on your camera and on a cell phone. That can be a big problem. So uh, Lightroom has very sophisticated controls that are easily uh, a match for Photoshop in terms of the subtlety and power that they do. Not quite as complex. I find it very difficult to use. I bought a copy, I played with it for a little bit, I'd used it to fix one a light aberration around the edge of something that I was pretty happy with. But um, I finally decided, for me, it wasn't worthwhile. But if you're getting really, really serious about digital photography, just be aware that Lightroom is probably even more popular than Photoshop now. Mm-hmm. However, I use Photoshop Elements. Mm-hmm. Which is a simplified photoshop yeah it's photoshop made friendly people who are professionals or who are longtime photoshop or lightroom users often look down their noses at elements as being sort of uh, photoshop for dummies but it can be quite powerful and effective Uh, it has three modes that you can work in quick guided and expert and quick it just does most of the work for you you just tell it fix this picture and it fixes it. Um, it'll say, you know, fix exposure or whatever, and you just click on it. And that can often be quite good. Guided actually gives you feedback. And this is what Photoshop direly needs. It says, okay, here's some menus. Now, first, look at this menu. Look at your picture. Find the spot that is too bright. Click on it now. 
Okay, you've done that. Now a new menu appears and it says, okay, now click correct exposure. Is it still too bright? Slide it to the left and so on. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it really is talking you through. It's like having an instructor at your elbow. It doesn't always do a beautiful job, but it's really helpful. You can learn a lot from it. You can uh, work with guided for a while until you feel really comfortable and then go into expert mode. Expert mode lands you into an interface that looks pretty much the same as Photoshop. It has fewer options and is not quite as subtle and sophisticated, but it's pretty powerful. And I work in expert mode almost all the time. Now, Photoshop also has a number of special tricks. For instance, taking a person from one picture and plopping them into another picture or um, what other examples would be good? Yeah, moving a person within a picture from one location to another. Um, taking two different shots. For instance, I took a picture this summer. I took two pictures of two guys sitting next to me on a garden tour. And I first took a picture of the guy sitting farthest from me and then one of the one sitting next to me. And in each case, the sharp focused one was the one that I was aiming at also had the best expression on their face. And using photo merge, I was able to put the two best exposures together into the same shot. You cannot tell that it, it wasn't just one photograph. Before version 14, photo merge was available in the menu, however you were using it. But now it's hidden, only under guided. If you're in the expert mode, you can't find it anymore because I guess they figured if you're expert, you don't need these little tricks. But there are wonderful things that the guided mode can do, including a lot of what they call fun edits. If you like Instagram, then you find that so you can make your photos look old fashioned or make part of a pictures stick out of the frame into a blank space surrounding or compose mosaics or puzzles or create a blur to look like something was going faster and all those things. Much of that I find cheesy. I've used the out of bounds for one shot, which I think I'll put a link up to for this, where I think it took me something like four hours <laughs> to do, even even guided. I found it very challenging. Oh. Part of it was there was this woman with hair flying all over the place and, and selecting all the hair turned out to be a real challenge. But the photo merge thing is extremely useful. I use that all the time. And what would take many hours and a lot of skill and a very steady hand in Photoshop can be just a snap using elements. So that's an, another reason to use it. Now, before we move on to um, talk about other aspects of this, Speaking of photo merge, I should mention my favorite photo merge of all time was on the cover of the Common Errors in English Usage book. Yes. Of course, this is insider information. This goes way back to 2002, I guess it was. We were creating the cover for the book. Uh, we found the photograph. Now it's appeared on all of the editions of the book and all of the print calendars that we used to print for the book of the woman at the chalkboard pointing to the errors expresso <laughs> and um, for all intensive purposes and so on and uh, so she's pointed to these things and this group of gentlemen is they're observing her and applauding her uh, i guess her acumen for knowing all of these usage errors but originally this was a photo of a man standing teaching another group of men Mm-hmm. And everybody looked at that. Uh, you looked at that. I looked at that. My wife looked at that. 
<laughs> your wife looked at it. Everybody kind of looked at it and said, okay, great. It's a vintage photo. It looks interesting. It's funny. Uh, but it's a lot of men. It's mansplaining, right? <laughs> yeah, mansplaining. Yes. How can, we, how can we fix this up? So what remains of the man? And you won't know this, and you probably won't even know if you go back and look at the cover now, that that is the arm of a man pointing at the chalkboard, and the rest of the woman came from another photograph. Right. Beautiful job, Tom. Actually, that wasn't me personally who did that, but yeah, that was how that was derived. So i like to talk about a few of the tools that any of these programs have, but uh, I use elements. Um one of them is the selections. Often you want to change just one part of a picture. You need to take it out, make it darker, make it lighter, blur it, whatever. And learning how to select is really important. In the old days, that took a very steady hand. But the magic wand tool can do amazing things. And as time goes by and each new version comes along, they get better and better at selecting. Uh, there are all sorts of fine points about selecting I don't want to talk about today, but you can read about them. But selecting is really important. And if it makes you nervous, if you've seen it and thought, boy, that looks really hard, try the magic wand and prepare to be amazed. Mm -hmm. And the magic wand is a little, um, it looks like a wand and you tap an area of the photo and it tries to go around and find all of the areas of the photograph that are surrounding it that are of the same color shading and so on it tries to find edges yes um and sometimes you have to move it around and sometimes you have to hold down the well it's the option key or is it the alt key on windows um and then you can subtract things from your selection by touching them with the magic wand and the magic wand has various settings it works differently in different settings the basic primary one is probably for most people to stick at Another tool that's really, really important is a spot healing brush. Now, the cloning tool was around from the earliest days, and that let you take a little part of a picture, say some grass, and put it to cover up, um, say, some dog poop that you didn't want to be in your picture. But the spot healing tool is much more sophisticated at doing this kind of thing. And it looks like a Band-Aid. And it has controls so you can see how soft its edges are and how big the circle is and all of that stuff. And it can do really miraculous things of taking things out. I've often used it to remove electric wires from nature scenes. Of course, you can take out the ex-girlfriend of Henry Hung Group portrait. And there are lots of other things. I found uh, that at least in the version that I use, it sometimes has a problem right at the edge of photos that it'll create a black portion right at the edge that blurs out into the picture so you have to be very careful about doing it it helps a lot sometimes if you can select the area around where you're trying to use it um, but it's almost magic it's really a lot of fun then there are settings for adjusting it brighter darker under the uh, enhance uh, menu there are shadows and highlights and that is much more subtle than brightness and contrast. Sometimes you use one, sometimes the other. Play around with them both. And you don't need to know anything technical. Just look at it. Oh, make sure your screen is calibrated properly. If you have it uh, extremely bright set or somewhat dim so you won't bother somebody across the room, your photo editing is going to be all off when it comes time to print. 
your pictures won't look right. And there are technical means for setting that. Um, but that's something to think about. The crop tool, which is designed to look like an old actual tool, it's under the modify menu and uh, elements, uh, is important. If you want to take something out at the top, bottom, sides, uh, and make the photo just shape differently for some reason, then that crop tool comes in. And you can either use it freely so that the crop tool can be moved to whatever size you want. I have taken to trying to do less and less of that because I want to save work and money by using pre-cut mats around my pictures. And so if I just decide, oh, this is going to be an 8 by 10 picture, then I'll set the crop tool usually to 7.75 and uh, 9.75. That would give me an 8 by 10 with uh, a little bit less than that because I find that almost all pre-cut mats that are meant for 8 by 10 photos actually don't show all of an 8 by 10 photo. They're a little bit bigger than that. Yeah. Or the hole is a little bit smaller. Uh, so in order to get all of my picture in, I have to shrink it a little bit and then leave white space all around the outside. Um, so that can be very handy. And, and once you uh, set a crop, then you can move it around and say, okay, do I want to take out these trees on the left or does it look better to take the trees out on the right? Is there some really boring sky at the top that really doesn't add anything to the picture I could crop out? And again, if you've shot a bigger picture than you really need, then that helps. You've got more of the bottom part that you can play with. Right, yeah. Cropping tools is one of the most critical ones. I find... Um for just most basic adjustment, I really access the contrast and brightness sliders just to get things going with the image. If it's a very dark image and you adjust the brightness up, you can see how washed out it gets. Um, can you improve that by bumping up the contrast? Uh, just playing around with those sliders can get you off the ground when you're just diving in looking at an image. An even simpler way to deal with that is to, under the Enhance menu, click the adjust lighting levels and then just click auto and it'll make the darkest spots in your darkest areas in your picture really dark and the brightest spots bright now about half the time i find that that results in a very pleasing result um when it doesn't you could tweak with this menu further but i have other ways of dealing with that so i don't so very frequently if i look at it and it doesn't have quite enough contrast between brights and darks. First thing I'll do is just go to the levels, click auto. If it works and it looks great, you're done. If not, then you can go to other tools and start fussing around with them. One other really basic tool that is in the same area as the crop tool is the level tool. At first, I thought the icon looked like a lunchbox. And it took me a long time to figure out, oh, that's supposed to be a level, a really short bubble level of the kind that carpenters use. Um, and so you click on that and you just draw a line uh, along whatever horizon or bottom of a building or the level of somebody's shoes or, or whatever it is that you want to line up. And it will tilt your picture appropriately. And that's a really invaluable tool. If you're shooting an outdoor shot with a skyline visible in it, if it's just a little off, just a little tilted, not much, but just a little, it really disturbs people. It just looks bad. Mm -hmm. 
I noticed for a while, the New York Times travel section was full of pictures that were shot with all kinds of weird angles. And they didn't seem to care a bit. They seemed to like having it. Well, that's fine if you want to experiment with that. But if you just want to check and say, okay, is that horizon really level? Now, if you're like me shooting across water, since I live on an island and travel on ferries, and you're shooting at shorelines, the shoreline can actually be pointed toward you or away to you, and it can have a slant of its own, which is not really the horizon. So you can make the picture look weird by uh, aligning your picture with the wrong piece of land. Mm. So you have to use common sense this as well. Just use your eyeball. That's good advice generally for getting into Photoshop or any post-production tool. Get in there and do a save as. <laughs> Don't mess up your original image. Um, if you're using Lightroom, that's not such an issue. But uh, get in and start playing with all these tools and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You can always undo and get back to where you were before. You can sometimes find the most unusual and useful things just on your own playing around with all these tools. Right. Well, Paul, now that we're in talking about editing on the screen and using these programs, I want to get into talking about the uh, file format that we should be saving things in, but I think we better save that for next time, and we'll pick up there. Right. turns out that this is one of the deepest surfaces I've ever scratched. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what we're doing. Not trying to be too thorough, but my gosh, there's a whole lot about photography that uh, people can explore and uh, learn about. And I'm learning a lot just listening to you. So thank you again for this conversation. All right. Talk to you next time. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.